Thank you, ladies, for that uh, song. A lot of scripture uh, put to music. That's lovely always to hear scripture sung. Um, before we start, let's uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer and uh, uh, pray for God to move and talk to us this morning. Let's pray. A loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for, this, for these folk who have gathered in this place. And we know, Lord, that nothing is an accident with you, but everything, there's a purpose. And so this morning, we just still our hearts, still our minds, and come before you, the giver of life, the giver of living water. And we just ask you, Lord, to just take control of these few moments and speak to us from your word. We pray for those who are not able to be with us, those who are sick, those who are struggling with long-term illnesses. Lord, I just pray that your good hand be upon them. Would you give them comfort this morning and, Lord, strengthen them. Pray for our pastor as he uh, continues to enjoy some time away and pray that you'll be with him and his family. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Jason, for reading a long passage. Um, again, I might say the length of the passage is not proportional to the length of the sermon. So you can uh, take a deep breath. But, uh, um, but I've been just meditating on this passage, and no doubt you've heard several sermons on this. Uh, probably a lot better than what I will do this morning, but uh, there's always something about the Word of God that uh, some, a new perspective challenges you and uh, um, you want to try and understand what God's trying to say to you at a moment of time. This incident took place uh, with a Samaritan woman and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in a place called... Uh, Jacob's well, Sychar is the name of the city. The Samaritans uh, were a mixed race of people and therefore the Jews tended to avoid them. And uh, in fact, if you knew that uh, Samaritan was traveling on a certain path, the Jews would say, I won't go down that path, I'll go down this path. It was that bad. It, wasn't even, it was almost as if you get polluted if a Samaritan came across your path. So they were generally a rejected people, uh, not thought to be those of the faith. But they had a rich heritage. Mount Gerizim belonged to them, and so did Jacob's well. Um, a patriarch who's mentioned several times in the Bible. Mount Gerizim is a place where Abraham is supposed to have sacrificed Isaac. It's the place where Solomon's first temple was built. It's a place where Moses built an altar to worship the Lord. And it is also the place where the ark rested after floating several days after the flood. So you could say Mount Gerizim was a pretty important place. And so did this lady think. She said, well, we worship in Mount Gerizim. As the story unfolds, it is an important place. 
But is God found in important places? Is God revealed in important places? Or is God revealed to a seeking heart? Many today make pilgrimages to faraway places in the hope that they might meet God or find some rest for their souls. The Muslims would traditionally go to Mecca to, on an annual pilgrimage to pay their, what they think is um, the right thing to do to worship their God. And so this woman the, who, by her own admission, is um, someone who struggled in life. And so the first portrait, I, I want to give you three portraits this morning. The first is a struggle of the soul. And all of us have struggles of the soul. And the Bible encapsulates the story of this woman. And her story could be very much our story. You may not have five husbands and the one you're living it with now may not be your husband. But you have other struggles as bad as this woman had. And so when we read a story in the Bible, you, it's wrong to sort of conclude, well, I'm not that bad as that woman who had five husbands. Yeah, you may have five other vices far deeper and greater than this woman. So there is a struggle of the soul that needs to be identified. And what happens when you struggle with matters of the soul is that you go into private isolation. You don't want anyone to contact you. You just want to be on your own. And you'd wish everything would pass away and you'd just be left to your own self. The struggle of the soul deals with issues of morality. It, it deals with guilt of things that you may have committed. It deals with trying to live a life of pleasure, a life of happiness without giving in to immorality. It deals with the cries of broken lives, of broken marriages, of broken homes where boys and girls grow up in terrible circumstances. I was shocked to hear recently someone said to me that the school to which my son goes, a majority of the kids come from broken homes. And I thought, wow, I would have thought this shouldn't be the case, that kids have a, uh, you know, a chance that they should grow up in a home where there are good parents who bring up their children in godly ways. Her life was broken five times through broken marriages. Going from one man to another, looking for that elusive, perfect match. And she couldn't find it. They used her and threw her on the garbage bin of life. And the one she was living with now, in a hurtful relationship, looking for answers, hoping that it would turn out right. There was a restlessness about her. And I, I'm sure she would have asked, is there rest for a soul like me? Is there ever going to be contentment, joy, and security 
for a soul like mine. The struggle of the soul is real. The struggle of the soul is very much in our face in today's society. Our young people are pumping their body full of drugs, looking for some release to this problem, the struggle of the soul. Personally isolated, with no one to help them. The struggle of the soul also looks for meaning in life. Why am I here? How long do I suffer this, what I'm going through? Is this loneliness that I'm living with something that is going to be with me forever? I wish I had a loving home in which to grow up in. Why is there so much suffering in this world? Why do parents fight against each other? Why is there such a big vacuum in my life? Why is it that I, when I try to fill it with something, I try learning, I try reading books, I try to educate my mind with rich stuff, but it does me good for a while, but then I'm back into a vacuum again. I pick up another book, and I read through it, and I think this is going to be it, but at the end of it, there is this deep, gut-wrenching vacuum, a thirst that cannot be filled, a guilt that keeps gnawing at me, a sin that has taken such control of me, that I don't seem to be able to get out of. And then there is, of course, the mystery, the struggle with the mystery of life. Where did I come from? Where did I originate from? Where am I going? Is there life after death? Is there a better place that I would go to? And folks, I have to tell you, the Bible has answers to all those complex questions absolute certainty that you could have with the Bible says about those matters. And I want to say to you that the wonderful, wonderful thing is that God is a God who sees your struggle. If you're in the Bible, just turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 and I'm going to just read a couple of verses for you and show you that God is a God who, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. So the children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. They've been there a long time, 400 odd years. And they've been crying and their hearts have been breaking. And, and uh, God says to Moses, the person he was going to use to Come upon and rescue the people. Verse 7, the Lord said this, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. What a difference it makes when you know that there is a God who actually sees and looks upon your suffering. 
And he says, I have seen that affliction. It has not gone unnoticed. I know the struggle that you are facing. And God says, I will deliver. I'm here to deliver. Moses, I'm raising you up to be the deliverer of my people, Israel. And I want to tell all those who are struggling this morning, the struggle of the soul, that there is a deliverer. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he was going to come before this Samaritan woman, a woman that people would give a wide birth to. But Jesus had other ideas. Jesus himself gave a great invitation in Matthew 11 and verse 28. He said, come unto me, all ye that say, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so Jesus is looking at souls who are struggling and he's saying, I want to give you rest. So he says, I want you to come to me. I don't want you to sit there in isolation. I don't want you to stop coming to church because someone annoyed you in church. Listen, you come to church to meet with God. You come to be encouraged by the preaching of the word of God. And so God is saying to you, I want to give you rest. I know your soul is struggling and I want to give you rest. Now there's a very interesting verse that we sort of gloss over when we read this story and it's verse 4. The Bible says, and he must needs go through Samaria. And in actual fact, Jesus took a detour. Geographically, it was not necessary for him to, where he was going, to go through Samaria. But Jesus took a detour. So much so that they didn't bring food with them. And that's why the disciples left Jesus by the well and said, let's go and find a cafe somewhere that we could buy some food that we could eat. Because this is a strange country. We don't come this way. He must needs go through Jerusalem. You see, when God sees the cry of your heart, when God sees the sorrow that is embedded in your heart, he says, I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to come before you. I'm going to come in front of you. He must needs go through Jerusalem. The struggle of the soul. The second which I want to leave with you is that Jesus is the great satisfier of the soul. He is the one who can satisfy that innermost deep longing that you've got. So if you have been privately isolating yourself, what Jesus wants to do is to personally engage with you this morning. He comes before you. I must needs go to Good Shepherd Baptist Church in Almighty Creek. I need to meet Jack, who needs me there. And so Jesus confronts the woman with a very interesting dialogue. He didn't start preaching to her about her sin straight up. Now, did Jesus know that she had five husbands? Did he or did he not? He did. So he could have said, come here, you filthy woman. Sit down here. And he could have wagged his finger at her and had her 
a good session of counseling with her. No. Jesus knew that, but he did an amazing thing. He said, give me some water. Give me some water. And she immediately raised a whole heap of barriers to the engagement that Jesus was trying to make with her. She said, well, don't you know? I mean, are you a stranger here? Don't you know that you Jews don't talk to us Samaritans? And by the way, I mean, if you were to drink, let's assume you were really thirsty and um, if you were to drink from the vessel of a Samaritan, it was, a, it was polluted. So by drinking polluted stuff, you, you became polluted. That's how the Jews considered it. And therefore, you had to do a cleansing ceremony to get rid of that impurity that's come into your lives. And Jesus just confidently went and asked this woman to give her a drink of water. You know, when God sometimes comes before us, it's interesting how we can throw various barriers to God wanting to supply that very need that he's come to meet. And then Jesus counters her by saying, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew that I can give you something far greater and far more important that if you drank this water that you will never thirst again, would you take it? And of course she said, but, but, but you don't have anything to draw this water with. I mean, I, I, this well is pretty deep. You, you need something to draw this water with. How, how are you going to give me this water to drink? And so Jesus immediately switches her mind to the comparison between two types of water you can drink. This is the second thought I want you to keep in your mind. That you have a choice in life as to what waters you want to drink from. So you have the waters of the world that the world will offer. Or you'll have some living water that Jesus can give you. And the water of the world will have limited satisfaction. The water that Jesus gives will completely satisfy. He said, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. The water of this world will ask you to come repeatedly for more and more, and your thirst will never, ever get quenched. That vacuum within you will never be filled. Jesus said, all you need to do is to come once. And when you come and when you drink of this water, it will be in you like a spring, springing up into everlasting life. That's what Jesus said. Once I've given you this gift of salvation, once I have put within you this divine water of life, that spring will never be quenched. Man cannot quench it. It'll keep bubbling over and bubbling over and bubbling over, never run dry. What an amazing contrast to the water that the world gives. And no matter how many gallons of it you drink, you want more and more. But you drink once of the fountain of living water, you're filled forevermore. And what happens is your life gets transformed into a spring 
a spring that will refresh not only your life, but refresh many lives that you come into contact with. Waters of this world can run dry. There are some wells that will run dry. So one day you might think you're getting satisfaction from doing something, but one day that's going to run dry. And then you go looking for another well. The water that Jesus gives you is eternal. It's everlasting. Never runs dry. The water of this world is self-satisfying. You might feel that you've achieved something, that you made something of your life. The water that Jesus gives you will always be used to bless others. It will be a blessing to many as it pours out of your life from the goodness that, and the great work that God has done in your life to satisfy some others. The waters of this world can leave you void and empty. But the water that Jesus gives will always keep you full. The fullness that only Jesus can give. Jesus offers living water to quench our deepest need. And how does he do this? Firstly, there must be a cleansing. That struggling soul, that, that sin that so corrupts and disrupts our lives. One which the devil has got you in his clutches with. Jesus says, I need to cleanse you from that sin. So when he offers you living water, he says, first of all, let's wash away the filth. Let's wash away all the corrupt things. He died on the cross and shed his precious blood so that that blood will be a cleansing of your sin. All your moral failure, your rebellion against God is a thing of the past as God cleanses your life. I can tell you, you can ask anyone who's been saved. You know, you walk into church an unsaved person and then you hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and you go. And uh, people have told me they feel light as a feather. I, I, I know this is the first word that Justin told us in Papua New Guinea when he got, we believe, got gloriously saved. He, he, he said, put your hand on me because I feel I'm floating in the air. But that burden of sin got taken away. God says, you're my friend. I'm going to help you from now on. I will never leave you or forsake you. This water is going to remain with you forever. It's going to be bubbling up an eternal spring. Once I come into your life, I'm not going to go away. I'm going to provide cleansing. Not only a cleansing, but a connection with the eternal spring. Who pours this life into us? It is Jesus himself. So you're cleansed from all your impurity, but you're connected now to the one who is the fountain of living water himself. It's not a temporary connection. It is an eternal spring flowing from the throne of heaven into your very life. 
A few chapters later, Jesus in John chapter 7 and verse 37 was observing the people on the, as they were celebrating the feast and uh, what the priest would do on the day of this feast was that he would uh, uh, take, a, take a bucket and he would go to the pool of uh, Siloam and uh, he would take some water and he would walk through the streets. He would go back into the temple and he will pour this water on the altar to signify the miraculous way in which God cared for the children of Israel in the desert. How he was that living water. He, the, the Bible says that it was that rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And you know the story how Moses was asked to one strike the rock and then speak to the rock and that water came gushing out of that rock and that rock kept following the children of Israel. And uh, the priest would pour the water and uh, the people would chant something. But on the last day, something very special happened. The priest would come back. He'll go do the same routine and he'll come and he'll circle the altar seven times. And, and then after he circled the water seven times, he'd again pour the water. And the people would say this. This is a chant that they would chant. They said, bring now thy salvation. Bring now thy salvation. And it is at that cry that Jesus stood up and said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me out of his belly, out of his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. Bring now thy salvation, the cry of the people. And Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. When you engage with Jesus, what are you doing? Are you drinking of that living water that he gives? There is no substitute for that. There is no other thing that could do what that living water can do for you. Or are you still dabbling in the waters of the world? Sometimes satisfied, but most of the times empty. Sometimes polluted by the infected waters that you might be drinking. God said to this woman, if you knew what I was offering you, do you know what God's offering you this morning? You would ask, and I will gladly give it to you. The sad thing is many of us know where this living water is. Yes, I'm talking about Christians. And we still choose to go and drink in some dirty pools of water that the world is giving. Oh, how much you're missing out on. Oh, how much rest you can have. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He says, stop doing that. Just come and drink of this refreshing stream. I'm enough. I'm your savior. I gave my life for you. I hung on that cross. 
I want to see you through this journey. I want you to be a bubbling stream. I don't want you to be a dry well. And this morning, one of the questions I want to ask those of us who have been Christians, are you a dried up old well? Or are you a stream bubbling with living water? Are you one who just throws up excuse after excuse and God keeps saying to you, if only you knew, if only you knew, if only you knew, if only you would reach out and grasp it, it can change your whole life. It's not the winning of lotto that will change your whole life. That will disappear pretty quickly. But something that is very eternal. And Jesus did something remarkable with her. And this woman was, I think, getting very confused. He said, living water. I mean, does this water walk or something? I, I, what is he talking about? And then Jesus did the next remarkable thing. He said, go and bring your husband. I'll tell, tell you the whole story then. And then we know the story. She said, well, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, well, you are well said because you actually have five husbands. And the one you're living with is not your husband. God wanted her to see her own heart at this point of time. Laden with sin. Covering up, hoping that the introspection will stop. And again, the omniscient one just went and right to the source and said, call your husband and come. You know, I believe when Jesus said to her, you had five husbands and the one you are living with is not your husband. I think a burden was lifted from her at this point of time. The truth had come out. There's nothing to hide anymore. She saw that Jesus knew everything about her. Every nook and corner of her troubled life, of her struggling life, Jesus saw into it. And she said, well, we are waiting for this Messiah. Messiah translated in the context in which it is used here is called the Restorer. We're waiting for the Messiah to come and he will, he will show us the way. He, he will tell us the next step to take from Mount Gerizim. Who is this person, she said. And Jesus said, the person you're talking to is he. I believe this was another one of the I am statements of Jesus. He says, I am. I am. Jesus revealed her heart. Then Jesus revealed himself. You see, if you're honest before God and you come before God and you just lay bare your heart to God without throwing up excuses and covering up your life and saying to God, God, take me as I am. That's what I am. You know it. Hey, God knows everything about every one of us. <laughs> we can hide it from one another, but not from him. So they're absolutely foolish to hide it from him. 
The sooner you come to him, he says, I am he. You're talking to him. Yep, I can meet your need. And the last thought I want to leave with you is that there is not only the struggle of the soul, the satisfaction of the soul, but there is the stability of the soul. You know, in this story, Jesus gave two very vital truths about Christian life. One is about living water, that you need to have an ongoing personal relationship with God, and that when he is connected to you, your life will be a bubbling stream. That's the first truth he taught. And the second truth he taught was that you need to have the importance of worship in your life. You need to start to trust and worship God, whom you never worshipped before. And so she, he gave her the very important lesson of worship. She said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, one of the first things that happens when a person is saved, when a person says, Jesus, I trust you, I, I've been a sinner, I repent from my sin, I, I come before you, I want the blood of cleansing, your, your blood to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. Make me pure, make me clean. What he does is that spirit that was dead, when you first were born in sin, the Bible says it becomes quickened. The word quickened means it, it becomes alive. God puts that alive because the way we react, uh, relate to God is in spirit. So your spirit now can connect with God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says this, that... Our spirit is revived or quickened by God to know the things freely given to us by God. And so, so you start to engage in, in the spirit with God. Your spirit communes with his spirit and he starts to discover to you and commune with you the deep things of God. The Bible also says that they that are led by the spirit are the sons of God. It's not a dead, lifeless worship, but a living, connected worship. All of a sudden, your life becomes different. It's not just the routine of going to a church service and singing a few hymns and walking out at the end of it. But you go eagerly, wanting to connect with Almighty God. And say, God, what have you got for me today? Lord, what... New, what thing in my life will you change today? Would you agree with me that all of us need some stuff changing every week? And so we come and we say, God, can you change that? Can you take control of this? Brother Robin talking about anger last week. Can you come and take control of this anger? Just help me. Give me some wisdom. Your word has wisdom to deal with this stuff. Would you give that to me? You start to relate to God in your spirit. And your spirit and God's spirit can connect. And then he told the second point, he said, 
that you must worship me in truth. You know, one of the things that God hates most is that you turn up to church and that you're a hypocrite in church. Your heart is turned away from God. You just go through the motions, but you're, you're not connected to God in truth. Jesus was pretty strong about some things he said to the Pharisees about false worship. And I don't have time to go there, but God cannot be worshipped falsely. So he's saying to this Samaritan woman, listen, you're now saved because you've confessed your sin. You have asked for this living water. This water is bubbling up in your heart. I want you to get this. I want you to connect with me in your spirit. I've quickened your spirit and I want you to keep connecting because that's the worship that I require. I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. From now on, all your no more covering up. Everything is truth. Integrity of life is restored. Morality takes on a new meaning that you would now treasure in your heart what God has done for you and that you can draw nigh to him in truth. Hebrews 10 and verse 20 uh, says this, that he has provided us a new and living way. Therefore, let us draw near, he says, with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The psalmist said in Psalm 29 and verse 2, he said this, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness the truth of God's wonderful nature, his character. You know, worship is something that will sustain you through every trial in life. What is the first thing that Job did when he lost literally his whole family? The Bible says he, he rose up in the morning and he worshipped God. That's all he knew. He said, Lord, who, who have I but you? No matter what circumstance in life may come your way, if you're a worshipping Christian, if you're someone who truly worships God in spirit and in truth, you haven't been putting on a show, then when those bad things happen, and believe me, some bad things will happen to Christians as well. We are not exempt, unfortunately, from trials and tribulations that come upon all of us. Your worship will sustain you. Your relationship with God will sustain you. You can go and worship in God. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't say that if you're not a worshiping Christian. You may be going through some stuff today. But I encourage you, fall at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I thank you. You've revealed yourself to me. You're going to be my greatest treasure. I'll never stop worshipping you. You gave your life for me and I want to give my life to you. Wholly, totally, in all honesty, in all truth, I want to worship you from deep within my heart. And I'll close with this, the outcomes 
of this wonderful story. I want you to go home this afternoon and you read through this story again and cherish every, every twist and turn of this story. Because God speaks in so many ways. He might reveal to you so many little truths that you need to understand yourself. What is the outcome? In John 4, Jesus said that the Father seeks such to worship him. Verse 23. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. So when you come to God in this way, you come struggling, you're satisfied by the living water, and then you have the stability of worship that nothing can move you because you're worshiping the living God, the unchangeable one. It says the Father seeks such to worship him. The Father is pleased. The Father is pleased with such a life. Secondly, there's power released. Now I'm going to read to you, and we didn't read these verses. And what happened when this woman went back to the village and said to the people, now these are Samaritans, mind you. So she went back and said, look, I've met the Messiah. I've met the Christ. He's given me living water. And everyone thinking, what is she talking about? She said, the simple thing she said is, he told me everything that I ever did. That's all she said. She didn't preach a sermon. But she said, he told me everything that I ever did. And perhaps every person in that village of Saika knew what kind of a woman she was. And it says many believed, or some believed, because of her word of testimony. She instantly became a living testimony. Now let me read these follow-up verses, verse 39 of John chapter 4. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and, and he abode there two days. And say the next three words, and many, and many more believed on him because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that it is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Some amazing things happened here, that a village which, which would never entertain a Jew suddenly said to Jesus, Would you come and spend two days? And did you also notice that Jesus did not say, oh, this is, this is an impure village. These vessels are all impure. Jesus ate with them, slept with them, and communed with them and preached to them. You know, one of the things I often find quite fascinating about our Lord is that whenever he saw a leper, he went and touched the leper. What would you and I do when we see a leper? sort of go 
as far away as possible and keep some distance between a leper. I mean, if truth be known, if someone were to come and shake your hand and he had some boils on his hands, would you shake his hand? Jesus was never afraid to be a friend of sinners. And through the introduction of this lady, through her testimony, which was prior to her conversion, an absolute shambles, goes and says the word, I have met the Messiah. I met the Savior. He's restored my joy. He's changed me. He's said everything that I ever, ever did. Some believed immediately. But the others came and said, come, come into our village. Please stay. Please stay for two more days. And he did. And he preached. And I don't know what he preached. Maybe he told them about the love of God. And many more believed on him. Because of his word. You know, it amazes me that Jesus asked her to bring her husband. But she brought an entire village to the Lord. Isn't that dramatic or what? She brings an entire village. The village of Sychar got saved. When Jesus said, bring your husband. What is Jesus asking you to bring today? Your hurts, your barriers. What is stopping the power of God from working in your life? What is stopping the stream that is bubbling up or should be bubbling up in your life? Is it all the excuses? Is it the religion? Is it the cultural barriers? Is it the social barriers? What, what is it that is stopping you from coming to Jesus? You know, Jesus is happy to park himself in your home. In your, may I respectfully say, in your dirty home. He wants to commune with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to give you the water of life. He wants your life to be something like you've never seen before. He wants you to be changing villages, not just husbands or individuals. Do you believe that? Do you believe your life can change a village? Do you believe your life can change a nation? No matter what's happened to you with God on your side, massive change, massive power is possible. This woman experienced that power. I'm waiting, one of the things, you get to heaven, you know, there are a lot of un, unfinished stories in the Bible. And one of them is about this woman. Love to hear the rest of her story. How many other villages she won for Christ? I don't know. Would your life change today if God can use you in a mighty way? You're a simple person like this woman of Saika, that you can be someone who brings massive change through the help of Jesus in your life. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your most precious word. Take it, Lord, and use it as only you can to help our lives. 
to build our lives, to refresh our lives. Oh, how we need that living water. Is any here who haven't accepted that living water? I pray, Lord, this morning that they would rush to your side and just drink deeply and be blessed by the water that only you can give. Take us, use us. Help us to be your mission workers in a lost and lonely world. Keep us, Lord, drinking from the fountains of living water, worshipping you in spirit and in truth, making a difference for you in this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.